Thanks, Nicole. If you want to leave your outlines open, there's some space there to take notes. We've got lots to look at tonight. There's so much in this passage that kind of confuses us to start with, and, but there's so much that's super exciting. And so why don't we pray and ask God to shape us tonight as we let His Word mold us and His Spirit work in us. Let's, let's pray together. Father God, as we come to Your Word tonight, we come with all sorts of different pictures of who Jesus is and what He means to us. But we ask that by Your Word tonight, You would help us to see through Matthew's writings the reality of who Jesus is the reality of the future and what that means for the way that we live. We ask that by your spirit and through your word this very evening, you'd lift our eyes and you'd change us as a result. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My observation of life is that none of us like being judged. None of us like kind of standing up and going, yes, please, I'd like to be punished. I mean, do you know anyone that actually is like, yes, I love it. You know, I love it when I'm speeding down the road and I see blue and red lights behind me and I look at my speeder and I'm doing 10 or 20 Ks over. I think, yes, I enjoy paying fines. Does anyone know anyone like that? Yep, okay, (laughs) we'll chat to them later. But that feeling that you get, I remember it when I was at, at high school when you're called to the principal's office. And you're standing outside the principal's office and you know you've done stuff wrong. Uh, For me, I was suspended for four days um, shooting an air rifle at a blackboard. And I remember the reality of thinking, man, I'm done. Like I've done something wrong. Or maybe for you, it's that sinking feeling when someone you know and trust calls you out. And you're like, yeah, I actually did that. Have you ever thought through? Have you ever reflected? How do you deal with judgment? As I've been thinking about it this week, there's a few ways I've been thinking that we as humans deal with judgment. Uh, one way is that we, we write it off. I don't care what you think of me. You, you might, you, this policeman might think that I was speeding, but I could handle the speed. I was good. It's a stupid rule anyway. You know, those times we take our mask off when we're not supposed to. And you're like, ah, oh, it's a dumb rule. Stuff it. I'm right. They're wrong. I don't care what you think. Right? And, and sometimes we, we play that I don't care card as if the rules don't exist, that there is no such thing as judgment. But for others of us, Maybe we, we see judgment and the reality that we might need to face the music and we run from it. We run either because we're, we're scared of being called out, so scared that we try and live the perfect life. I don't ever want to be called out. I don't ever want to stand out. And, and so we, we try to never do anything wrong and never get on anyone's bad side. We say sorry before we even think we've done anything wrong. If that's you, it's an incredible burden to carry, isn't it? To try and live the perfect life and think, I'm going to run from judgment. Or perhaps you run the other extreme, the third way, that you, you, you cover it up by kind of um, putting forward an alternative reality. People say, like the policeman, you are speeding. No, 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 I think your, your, your stuff must be wrong. My speeder didn't say that. My speeder said I was doing the speed limit. Or, no, no, I was always wearing the mask. Nothing happened. It was all good here. You put forward another alternate reality, but that can be just as exhausting, can't it? Always kind of going with the lie. See, We're not very good at dealing with judgment, real judgment, not judgmentalism where someone looks down their nose at you just saying, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. I can't believe it. Man, when you you have kids or you have kids, that's that's what goes on all the time. People are like, oh, you're parenting the wrong way. You should do this. If you did this, your kid would work that way. You're like, well, that's, you know, you're not really the authority on parenting. Deep down, sometimes I kind of hope that they they have really kind of horribly behaved kids and sometimes they've got to live it out. Be like, ha, ha, ha. But anyway... I'm talking about judgment when it calls out that we have a problem, that we've done something wrong. 
You know, that moment that we've got to face the music, we've got to fess up to what we've actually said or done or haven't done. And sometimes that means we need to pay the price for it. As Matthew starts this next section, 30 years have gone past from last week. Last week, we left Jesus as a baby in the manger. This week, Matthew points Jesus out as someone very different than you first might think, a very different picture of Jesus. He has a picture of Jesus as a judge. Literally, he's got a a pitchfork, a winnowing fork in one hand and an axe in another. I don't know if that's your picture of Jesus. That's what Matthew wants us to see. That's not all that Jesus brings, but Matthew introduces him at this point in the passage as the one who is coming to judge. Now, we all love judgment when we're the ones that are wronged, right? Those moments that, that someone speeds past you in the car and you're like, I wish I was going that fast, but I can't. I'm going to stick to the speed limit. And then, you know, a few, a few minutes later around the corner, a police car's got them pulled over and you're like, ha ha, suckers. Like, you know, that moment where you're like, it's so right. I feel vindicated. I was doing the speed limit. I'm a, I'm a good citizen. Or, or you've been wronged and actually the person who's, who's done it gets found out. There's something right about that. There's something harsh and hard about when we're called out. When the judgment is upon us, it's a different story. Tonight, Matthew wants to enlarge your view and mine of Jesus, to make sure we understand the incredible significance of him for you and me. And it's got to do with judgment. But in order to do that, we're going to need to go through some of the background of this passage. There's a whole number of things going on that we we kind of don't get at first reading. We're then going to see that when we understand the background, it paints a very different picture of Jesus. And when you understand that and the future he brings in, we're going to see how it changes the way we live in the present. So first, let's look at some of the background. Now, when I was a kid, I loved these um, 3D magic books. Do you know the ones where you look at them for ages and they look like some abstract art, but you look for long enough and then a 3D picture pops out? Has anyone ever seen one of those or had a go of those magic? Yeah, Sarah's like, people won't know that. I'm like, yes, they will. They'll know it. Well done. But you look at these books and like growing up as a kid, they always took so long for me to get it. Some people got it really fast, but for me, it was always like, like, how do you do it? You got to go cross-eyed and then you're like, man, I'm getting spaced out. And, you know, you got to try and listen to the teacher at the same time. You're just trying to get it. But when you finally get them, it's like, boom, there's this 3D thing that comes out at you. And it's like a whale or a fish or a shark or something like, whoa, and it jumps out of the page and like you're moving and it's like you can see it and suddenly you understand what's going on. Well, this passage tonight is a little bit like a 3D magic book. If you don't understand the background, if you haven't looked at the background long enough, you won't understand kind of what's happening here. I mean, we read about a few things in the passage that that are kind of odd. Some guy rocking up and it talks about his his clothing being weird. And then there's kind of um, this this introduction of, of Jesus and this voice from this divine PA system saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. You know, what is that? Is that just like God going at a dinner party? Oh, this is my boy. I'm proud of him. Like, what, what's happening there? And then why, why is Matthew spending time for us describing John's clothing? Like, is Matthew the new editor for Vogue first century? He's like, he's wearing a leather belt, sporting a camel skin cover and eating locusts and honey as he walks down the kind of catwalk. You're like, why do we care? I mean, do you care what John the Baptist is wearing? And why is he called that anyway? And what's this got to do with where we're at today and me? Well, let me show you that the background matters. Because when we understand it, it starts to show us in 3D glory the reality of who Jesus is. The passage starts with the words in verse 1, in those days. Matthew's writing probably about AD 60, and he's writing about the events that have gone on 30 years before around the life of Jesus. 
what he's reporting happened in the wilderness of Judea, we, we, we read. A, a real place, real time. You, you, can be, you can go there today. Then we're introduced to John the Baptist. Now, the Baptist wasn't his last name. It's like Rowan the Hillsden, you know, John the Baptist, you know. No, that was to kind of work out which one he was because there were lots of Johns. Um, growing up in my year of, in, in high school, there were three Sarahs, right? I married one of them. It was real bad to get them confused, real bad. You don't want to, I didn't marry them when I was at high school, but, but later on, you know, and, and you don't want to do that. So here, Matthew's going, this guy, John, is John the Baptist. Now, we actually hear a bit about John the Baptist throughout ancient history. Throughout Josephus, who was kind of a Jew and then defected and jumped into bed with the Romans and then wrote a Jewish history for the Romans. We know lots about the first century through Josephus's writings. And he tells us lots about this man, John the Baptist, that people went out to him. In the book of Acts, people were still following him. There's something big about him. But what's baptism? And what's that got to do with? How do we understand that? Well, in the ancient world, in the first century, baptism was already existent. It was something that was going on, like a washing ceremony. But it was something that the Jews did to non-Jews. Jews never did it to themselves. It was someone who was like, oh, I've seen the God of the Jews, the God called Yahweh, and I want in. I'm convinced he's the true and living God, but I've not been born a Jew. And so they, they did this baptism to say, we're going to wash you clean and see so you can come in and, and be part of the, the Jewish people. Um, and so it really is an uh, identification of people with a new group of people. That's what had been going on. It was a ritual that you identified with the thing you were joining. And so you read in 1 Corinthians 10, have a look at it on the screen. Paul says these words, that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, talking about Exodus when they left, there was a cloud and fire. And then were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. As people left Egypt and, and they kind of went through the Red Sea, Paul's saying that was a baptism, an identification of, of these people coming out of slavery and being called to God's people. And something that you see there was not just kind of all the adults that did this, it was the whole family. All of those, those families of Israel came through and were baptized, identified part of Moses and his promises that God had given to him. Now in this idea of baptism that was happening for John, which is different to the New Testament baptism we kind of get um, post-Jesus' death and resurrection. Water was also important. It was a symbol of cleansing and and of washing. And so that's the way that these non-Jews could then be identified with the Jews because they would be washed clean and become part of God's people. Now, this guy, John, John the Baptist, right? He was doing something very, very different. He was calling people out to the wilderness where he was. Everyone knew of him. They were coming and and there's lots of evidence around it. And he was baptizing not only non-Jews, but Jews as well. Why do the Jews need to be washed clean? Why is John doing this? Why are people flocking out to John the Baptist? There's something going on here. And then we start reading of his clothing of this guy, John. That he had this camel hair garment. And we're like, again, why is this important? Well, it's important because it was the uniform of prophets. It was a uniform of prophets. Look at verse 4 of Matthew 3. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. What that tells us is that John is a key prophet. Prophets were calling out the pomp and excesses of the world, calling people to what, back to what really mattered. And John was doing that, but he couldn't do that by wearing fancy clothes. He's going, guys, we're actually serving God is what matters. 
But more than that, he dressed exactly like someone else. Uh, someone that was spoken of 800 years earlier, a man by the name of Elijah. And as we look at this, you start to go, why, why are they telling us about clothing? Well, in 2 Kings 1, someone comes to the king, reports a message that God had given to the king. And the king says, who sent this messenger? Who, who, who did it? Come with me. 2 Kings 1 verse 7. The king asked them, what sort of man came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? They replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. Ah, the clothing of prophets. What does the king say? Straight away, it's Elijah the Tishbite. People recognized this prophet, Elijah, by what he was wearing. Elijah called out the king and his wicked wife. John the Baptist stepped onto the world stage, wore the same type of clothes, and called out the current king and his wife as well. Matthew's showing here a background to the events of a life of Jesus to show that John is like Elijah. He's in the wilderness, which is important as well. We'll see in a minute. Why were people going out to him? John's message, what was he saying? Was repent. Repent. Now, it's not a very sexy message. He wasn't out there saying, hey, come to, come to me and make your life better. Come and live a more fulfilled life. Come and have your best life now. That's what it's about. Come and join in. It'll be awesome. You'll be awesome. Let's experience the blessing of God and the twinkle dust on your toes. You know, He wasn't saying all exciting things like that. He's saying, you need to turn. Because repentance means to turn around. Say you're going one direction, trusting in yourself, living your way, don't really care about anyone else. To repent is to stop going that direction and to turn 180 degrees and go the other direction. To come back, to say sorry and to change, to go God's way rather than our way. One of the things I've loved about the Winter Olympics has been uh, remembering my um, degrees of a circle again. As we've been watching the, um, the uh, snowboarding, you know, it's like, oh, so there's like a 180. That's this one where we turn. That's what repentance is. But then there's like the 360 where someone spins in the air. And then there's the 720 and the 1080. I'm like, that's two, that's three, right? You've got to get your maths right. Sometimes I hear people say, yeah, they just did a full 360 in their life. I'm like, don't do that. You end up going the same way. It's like a full, <laughs> you don't even do 180. So you go this way, turn 180 back that way. You know what they mean, right? John is calling people in the desert to turn back to God. Now, repentance, it's not just being sorry. Sometimes we're really sorry for the, the way we've done something. You know, you, you do something, you hurt someone, you go, I'm really sorry for that, but you still keep doing the same thing, walking the same way. No, repentance is saying sorry and then turning, changing because of it. John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, why does that matter? Well, keep looking with me. There's a bit of data here to kind of understand this background. You're just at the point where you're starting to see something 3D pop out soon, but you know, it's not quite there. The kingdom of heaven means the kingdom of God. The reason that they didn't say the kingdom of God is because Jews were super scared not to use God's name in vain. So we'll just say the kingdom of heaven and other kind of ways of saying it, aphorisms. But here, John is saying the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, this is a central idea to the book of Matthew. It's a central idea to, of whole human history. That's why we've called this series Kingdom Come, because the idea of the kingdom is key. We're going to see next week, as Jesus starts to open his mouth, that this is what he says, Matthew 4, verse 17. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, at us at the moment, my guess is for most of us, we're like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what that is. 
doesn't make us go, ooh, doesn't send shivers down our spine, doesn't make us scared. Do anyone get scared of that? My guess is probably not. <laughs> oh, he says these words. Now, he doesn't explain, Matthew, here, what the kingdom of heaven is, because well, all the Jews knew it. For them, they're like, man, this is what? That's why they flocked to hear John. Because they've been staring at the background of the Old Testament for such a long time. The kingdom of heaven was the time when all God's promises would come to fruition, when God would put his king in place and God would rule and his blessings and his promises would happen and evil would be done away with. There'd be God ruling over every place, over all people forever. And not just God ruling, but his uncontested ruling. Have a look at Daniel 2 verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure forever. It's essentially like, well, that's a bit harsh. Kind of crush these other kingdoms. But remember, every other king is a pretend king compared to the true and living God. What he's talking about is a crushing of evil, of wrong, of all the things that we go, yes, justice needs to happen. He's saying when the kingdom of heaven comes, when the kingdom of God comes, God's contested rule, that is where others are saying, no, I want to be king. No, I, I want to rule my life, will no longer be contested. It moves from his contested rule to his uncontested rule. So the Bible starts out with God creating the universe, Adam and Eve in the garden. And what happens? There's this serpent there who's then contesting the rule of God. Did God really say you won't surely die? You won't surely die. He doesn't want you to become like him. So what does Eve do? She says, hey, this looks good and pleasing to the eye and tasty. I'm going to eat from the tree of a knowledge of good and evil because I want to be like God. I want to determine what right and wrong is. I want to contest the rule of God. And she does. And Adam with her. And so for humanity... The contested rule of God happens from that point onwards. And that's the story of the Bible and the story of you and me, isn't it? So often we contest God's rule. We want to live our life our way without Him. The reason we don't see God's kingdom here and now in its fullness is because the kingdom is still contested. God has not come back and done what Daniel 2 said and said, I'm going to bring in my judgment on all people and end it. But the Old Testament speaks of a time when God will do that when he'll re-establish his kingdom, when it will be uncontested. In a few weeks' time, we're going to get to Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, probably one of the most famous sermons in all of human history. And Jesus says these words, Blessed are those who mourn. He doesn't just mean blessed are those who kind of go, oh, it's just a sad day, lots of things have gone wrong, and I'm really mourning, and I've got grief. No, it's mourning over the fact that God's kingship is contested that the kingdom has not yet come. That's how Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. May may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May the uncontested rule of God come where all evil is put away and God's judgment come on those that are evil. Jesus is saying, pray for that day, that all powers will be brought into submission. All people will publicly and visibly recognize God as king. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2 will happen. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Ah, how we long for the uncontested rule of God for that day. Well, the Old Testament talks about the the uncontested rule of God coming in, in one picture. And it calls it the coming of the kingdom of God. It talks about a whole recreation of the universe. 
And so when the first century person hears some wild guy in the desert looking like Elijah, kind of saying stuff like Elijah, and then says, repent for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is here, they're thinking, judgment. Look Look with me at Isaiah 65. This is the promise, for I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. I'll create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad to my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be no longer heard in her. The judgment of God is coming, the righting of wrongs. Such an amazing picture, isn't it? With God reigning, the kingdom flourishing and going forever. If, if you love love, if you love peace, if you love freedom and justice and righteousness, if you love all those things, and as you hear the reality that the kingdom of heaven is near, your heart should flutter. You should be like, yes, this is great. God's kingdom is coming. But at the same time, you ought to be nervous because so is the judge. See, the way God brings in his kingdom, the way he promised he would bring in his kingdom, and this is the last two things we need to understand of our background, is through bringing in his king. Lots of places in the Old Testament point to the coming of a king, but I want you to point to particularly two places. Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Write them down. Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. You get these things and the whole thing pops. You ready? In Psalm 2, God writes, uh, this psalm, David writes from God, that God will establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. He will crush all opposition and put away all rebellion. Listen to the way Psalm Psalm 2 starts. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, right? The contested rule of God. And the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. And he speaks to them in anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. He that king. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. And what does he say? You are my son. Today I have become your father. Psalm 2 is speaking of a day that God's king comes. He will come as the son of God. He will come with judgment and wrath, showing that the rulers of this world are nothing and that that God's reign will be uncontested forever. There's something so good about that. When evil is stopped, there's something so right. What's well, an important piece of the background? The last piece is Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 speaks in a series of songs that speak about the coming of this one called the servant. This, this servant comes, we read about him in Isaiah 53. You know that Isaiah 53, 6? Um, what is, how does it start? Anyone know? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has placed on him the iniquity of us all. Right? There's this servant who's coming who would take the penalty for our sins. And this servant would, would come, and there's all these moments that are spoken of this servant. So Psalm, sorry, Isaiah 42, verse 1 says this. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. Remember that? He will bring justice to the nations. All Israel are waiting for this servant who will bring justice to the nations, who will who'll take the punishment for the people. They knew that one would come and prepare the way for him. Just two chapters earlier in Isaiah 40, this is what God says. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and announce to her that the time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. And even ground will be smooth. The rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Not just the Jews. All humanity will see the glory of the Lord when he sends his servant. Are you starting to see it? If it wasn't clear enough, the very last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, or if you're Italian, Malachi, what's his name? Um, he speaks, you know, 400, 450 years before John the Baptist and Jesus. This is what he says, Malachi 3.1. Say, I'm going to send my messenger, speaking for God, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Elijah's somehow going to come back. I mean, Elijah was raised up and went to walk with God. What is happening? This Elijah figure would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, before God's judgment comes in and brings his uncontested rule. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Every Jew was waiting for the servant to come. Every Jew was waiting for God's king to come. They were waiting for the moment that the kingdom of God would come and God's judgment would come on all the nations, the coming of the kings. And so John the Baptist turns up looking like Elijah, speaking in the wilderness, saying the kingdom of God is near. And every hair on the back of every Jew's back is standing up going, what? The king is here? The kingdom is coming? Well, now we understand that background. It's my hope, if you haven't already seen it, you'll start to see a very different future that is on view from what we might think. The moment John the Baptist steps onto the world stage and says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here, what do you think the people of Judah hear? Matthew wants to make it clear what was blindingly obvious for all Israel, the Elijah figure that was to come is here. And his name is John. And he was preparing the way for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is happening. God is going to bring justice and his uncontested rule will come in. Man, this is exciting, but it's also scary because the judgment of God is coming. John's job, John the Baptist, was to make sure the world was ready for that king. His task, to clear the way, make straight paths, to make sure the world was ready. Ready for what? He was painting a picture of the future that was judgment, the kingdom of God, the king to come. So people flock to John. And what does he do? He calls them to repent. And he starts baptizing not just the Gentiles, the non-Jews. That's always what had been happening, remember. He starts baptizing the Jews as well and washing them clean. Why do Jews need to be washed clean? Because something so big, so core, so central to all of human history is about to happen. So much so that being a Jew, well, it didn't really matter anymore. John is saying none of us are clean. None of us are ready. This idea of Israel being God's people, it's disintegrated to the point they no longer serve God. And so Matthew then shows what happens next. These Pharisees and Sadducees rock up. John's out in the wilderness. Is the kingdom of heaven coming? Pharisees and Sadducees, they're like the, the Bible college geeks, right? The, the, the fancy religious people dressed up in their pomp will go out and you know, see what this John the Baptist is doing. and we'll Cast our judgment. We'll be judgmental on him. <laughs> well, I don't know if they were ready for this. 
They come out to John, and this is what Matthew records happens. Verse 7 of Matthew 3. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, welcome, come and be baptized. He said, you brood of vipers, <laughs> who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? See, that wrath, coming wrath is happening. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Welcome to my dinner party. You suck. You're hypocrites. You're actually living these lives, pretending you're religious people, pretending your heart is with God, but you're far from God. John didn't mince his words, did he? And the outward issue with these religious leaders of the day, with Israel altogether, was their hypocrisy. They had the outward signs of living a good life, following the letter of the law, but being far from God. As I read it of these Pharisees, I'm like, you idiots, you hypocrites. But God puts it here as a mirror for you and me. Ever found yourself living out a way that's very different on the outside from what's going on on the inside? I have. When we moved to New Zealand from Australia, um, we had this great moment where we, we packed our fridge. We came across in a container, probably eight weeks. We cleaned our fridge. Uh, we arrived in our house in Sandrium and then they unpacked the container. Um, it was great. The removalist had one guy. He was huge. He was probably about as wide as he was tall. Like You can imagine this guy's like square. SpongeBob SquarePants, but just huge, right? And, and um, he just didn't do anything the whole time. I'm like, what is this guy here for? Anyway, he got time to move the fridge. And it's in the back of this kind of container. Anyway, he walks up and just goes, Whoa and just walks into our house and just like puts it down on his own. I'm like, that guy's a machine. But our fridge was like so white and sparkly. And then we opened it. And what came out of our fridge is what, what I call the fridge monster. You ever smelt the fridge monster? When a fridge has been shut for a long time, the air inside goes stale and, and this awful smell comes out. You open the fridge and it's like, it gets up your nose and like, I, like you just want to vomit. It's disgusting. Do not open a fridge. It's been shut for a long time. And that was our fridge. And the inside of it was like green. We put all our food in this thing and we cleaned it out before we sent it. But now it was disgusting and horrible. Eight weeks left in the dark and what happened? Oh, it looked good on the outside, but its inside was gone. Kind of like Israel. Going through all the motions, looking so good. But on the inside, their hearts were far from God. Kind of like you and me. And we pretend that we're all right before God. That, you know, we're going God's way. We come along to church. We tick the boxes. We join a connect group. We do all the things that are right. But in the end, our hearts are far from God. We don't always put God first. There's a sense where John's calling out us today as we read his story. Are you prepared for the judgment of God? Are you prepared for God's king to come? On my own, I'm not. I don't live for him in every area. The Jews, though, they're like, but we're Jews. We're like royal family. We're, from, we're descendants of Abraham. God loves us because God chose us as his people. And there's nothing wrong going to go on with us. Like we're, we're God's people. We've got Abraham as our father. And the Jews, they had been given God's promise. And God had promised to, to love and look after his people and to bless the whole world through them. And so they thought they were safe because they're kind of like royals. The press has been helpful to show lately that you can be a royal and do really dumb things. doesn't mean you can stay a royal. Prince Andrew is finding that out. He's doing all sorts of dumb stuff. And now because he hasn't lived out the family likeness, they're going, you cannot have this title as a royal anymore. Well, what John is saying from God to these Jews is, it matters diddly squat, the fact that you're a Jew. Look with me. Verse 9 of chapter 3. 
Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I'm pretty sure he said it that way, by the way. Don't presume to say, we have Abraham as our father. I think, I think that's what he was saying. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Or in other words, these stones will be better children of Abraham than you. <laughs> you guys, you, you, you totally lost it. You, you're gone. And then listen to this. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is coming. God is coming to judge. He, he's, who warned you about the wrath of God coming? The axe is ready at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And he speaks a little bit later of, of this one who's coming, being ready with a winnowing fork to sort out the chaff, the, the, the dodgy bits from the good bits. It matters deadly squat your heritage, whether you're from a Jew or not. God is king, is coming, and he's coming with an axe and pitchfork in his hand. That's a very different picture of Jesus than most of us have, isn't it? We've got those pictures of Jesus from when we we're kids in the kids' storybook of lovely blue eyes and long hair and a nice white robe kind of floating around or a stained glass window with a plate behind kind of his head like, ah! Matthew wants us to recognize that as Jesus steps onto the world scene, he has an axe in one hand and a pitchfork in the other, bringing in the judgment of God for the way we have treated him. I'm serious. In one sense, we cheer, yeah, those hypocrites, those unfruitful people, then we realize that it's shown against us as well, don't we? If Israel weren't safe, God's chosen people that he called to himself and gave the promises to set apart as his own nation, do you think we're safe as people who aren't Jews, generally? If Israel aren't safe, the nations aren't safe. No one is safe, for all have turned our backs on God. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. I've got to say, it's entirely possible today to be just as religious as these Pharisees, to, to kind of trust in our own standing before God, that, that we're good enough for Him, that we help enough old ladies across the road, that I go to church, that I, that I kind of come even when it's, um, when it's been kind of locked down and COVID's around and I gather people in my house. And you might say, look, my parents are Christian and I went to church, I've been baptized, all these things. You know, I lead a connect group. I'm a pastor of a church. It's entirely possible to say all those things, but if our trust is in those things, rather than in the servant who came to lay his life down for us, then we're deluded. We need to hear the warning of John tonight. The judgment of God is coming in the kingdom of heaven. The axe is ready and the fire is burning. That's the different future. That's what John wants to lay out before us. That is the future of this whole world, a future of judgment on, on everyone who's been evil and rebellious, but that's us all. It's the end of the contested reign of God and the beginning of the uncontested reign. So John in the wilderness calls people to repent, to turn and be ready for God's king. But Matthew can't help but show the solution to the problem of God's judgment at the same time. Because the reality of the judgment of God in the future changes the way we need to live now and how we need to respond to God's king. So what do we see? How do we live now? Well, the next part in our story, in verse 13, Matthew introduces us to Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me? Jesus answered him, allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is the way to show what I'm really here to do. This is the way to give the 3D picture of all human history to understand what I've come to do. And John allowed Jesus to be baptized. 
as if he actually had a choice. John, his baptism, it wasn't forgiving people's sins like baptism today symbolizes. It was preparing people, preparing people for the one that was to come. See, that gives us a hint here that if baptism is about preparing people in this sense of for the one who is to come, then the one who is to come has to do something with, with our sin. Lots of people think, look, Jesus, my picture of Jesus, he's come as a, as a good moral teacher. So if that was the case, wouldn't John the Baptist be prepping people in their maths and arithmetic and logic and, and understanding with, with a pencil, kind of how you can write things down well? That, that's what it means to be prepared. Or if, if Jesus was coming to, to heal the world and to get rid of all the sickness in the world, he'd be saying, everyone, bring your mats, get your sick people, get ready to take your masks off and be cured from COVID forever. You ready? But there's none of that. He says, repent. Jesus has come as the judge of the world to look at our hearts and to bring God's judgment. But he's also come as one who would step into our place, who would be baptized with this John's baptism to show that he had done nothing wrong. There was nothing to cleanse him from. Because as he goes down for his baptism, as he kneels down into the water, what does Matthew say happens? Verse 16. When Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming down on him. And a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Do you see it? Has the 3D picture popped out of, of, of the kind of human history to see what's going on? This is not just a cool party trick. God is quoting at this moment Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. This is the king. Psalm 2 verse 7. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son, today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Imagine being there. The heavens open. This is, and John's been preaching, the kingdom of heaven is coming. The kingdom of God is almost here. The judgment is coming. This is the end. And then the heavens open and they hear, you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. You're like, ah, this is the king of Psalm 2. To squash the other kings. What is going on? And then Isaiah's words start ringing in their ears. What does Isaiah 42, 1 say? This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. And sometimes people come along and say, oh, this is when Jesus was baptized by the spirit. <laughs> no, the spirit descended on him to say, he is the Isaiah 42 suffering servant who would come. He will bring justice to the nations. It's all happening to fulfill what is going on. Jesus proclaims the kingdom of of God is near. The king has come and his name is Jesus. And people are like, who is this guy? And what does that mean for the way that we live now? I mean, we still see God's contested reign, don't we? Jesus has come, but the world hasn't changed. There's still sickness. I mean, look at us all. You guys are wearing masks. So thankful I don't have to preach with a mask. But people are like, well, what has gone on? <laughs> We see in God's goodness, he's given us a pause before his judgment. I've used this illustration before, but if you ever watch those videos of buildings blow up, well, there's something fun. YouTube seems to put them on my, on my YouTube feed occasionally. But there's you know, all these buildings across the world where they, they put all the, the, the explosives on like the second level and they stand back and everyone watches and they hit the button or they have this big thing. I don't know why it needs to be so big. Anyway, and they press the button and it goes like... 
and the buildings, all the foundations are blown, but they're still standing, you know? There's this moment the building is still up, but all its foundations have been blown out. It's like the explosions happen, but why is it still standing? Is this pause before the drop. And then suddenly it's like, and it goes like that. (laughs) The moment you and I live in right now is the pause before the drop. The king has come. He's proclaimed his judgment. He's died in our place. He's risen again. He's dealt with our sin. He said, I've died in your place. We sit in an age now where the judgment of God that will come when Jesus returns has been poured out on him. And we live in this pause before the drop. Or in other words, the now but not yet tension, where now God's king has come, but it's not yet in its fullness. And so we get this moment now to speak to a world around us, for ourselves to repent. Peter says the reason that God hasn't come back yet, Jesus hasn't returned, is because God is giving us more time to come back to him. He's being patient with us. He's being patient with you and me. Today, Matthew wants us to lift our sights and realize that Jesus is the key to all human history. He's the one who stepped in full 3D glory into the face of the earth and said, I am the king. I will be the one who will be the uncontested ruler of all when I come back again. And I'm giving you this moment, the pause before the drop, to come to me and trust me, to share the news of who I am and what I've done with the world like John the Baptist did preparing the way. Now you can speak it with clarity. When we see the background and who Jesus is, it paints a very different future of judgment for the world around us. We're not living for the here and now. We're living for a reality that we'll be judged. There is a solution, though, in the person of Jesus who stepped into our place. He's now given us time. So as we live in this age, we need to listen to what John is saying. We need to be prepared for the king who judges. We recognize our hypocrisy. Stop mucking around and thinking that we can run away from the judgment of God, that we can live a perfect life and and somehow be okay, or that we can just say to God, I don't care, I don't care who you are. None of that can happen. No, we need the one who was baptized in our place, who took the penalty for us to come and trust in him. As we live now in this age, in this pause before the drop, we need to act like people who do what John does, who speak the truth to a world around us. The world doesn't want to hear that Jesus is coming back. That's stupid. Whatever, dumb news. But you know what? He is. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The world wants us to make Jesus into a nice moral teacher with lots of fluffy sheep and a little plate behind his head, and that's nice for you. But Matthew introduces him as the one coming with a pitchfork and an axe, ready to bring the judgment of God. And yet we have this message of hope, of great promise of God that our sins can be forgiven. And so we need to, like John, speak up. It's why we exist as Unichurch, to tell the world around us, to encourage one another, to keep putting Jesus at the center of our lives, not in order to be good enough for God, but because Jesus did it for us. Yes, we're going to look weird to the world around us. Yes, people will, will laugh at the, the picture of Jesus we proclaim. They always have, but they won't forever. For every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But just imagine that we use the time we have now, the pause before the drop, to share the news of Jesus with those around us, that people might come to know him and trust him. It's my prayer as we look at what Matthew says about Jesus, that we will see him as he really is and live in the present in light of that future and say, how amazing are you? Let's pray.
Father God, tonight, we've seen so much of human history come together in its fulfillment in your Son. We're so thankful that you haven't left us to our own devices. You've not stayed silent, but you've made known the reality that Jesus will come and judge the living and the dead. We're so thankful that evil will be put away with and sickness and mourning and crying and pain. All those things will be done. And we ask that as we see them, you would cause us to mourn. To mourn that your rule is still contested and to to bring about people coming and trusting in you. We ask you'd work in us and through us for that. For those of us, Lord, who don't yet trust you, we ask that tonight you would reveal yourself by your spirit, that people would see who Jesus is. We might make Jesus our king, the one who has come as the servant, who suffered in our place so that we could be forgiven. Father God, let our picture of Jesus be the real picture, the true picture, the one that Matthew speaks of, the one that you have made known. And give us a great hope, a great excitement to share this news with the world around us that they might live in this new creation, in the uncontested reign of God. That you might bring us into that now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.